Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. I'm Simon. And I am Haney. Wait, what? Uh, uh, okay, we're, we're Medium in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 160, recorded on September the 28th, 2021. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on needypintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. Simon, why aren't we alone? I don't know. You sent the invites, <laughs> or I did, but you sent the invites to this room. And I was sick and tired of being alone with you. Well, that makes a strange amount of sense. <laughs> so we've managed to lure in Haney. Haney is, is um, I was about to say, old news to most of our listeners. <laughs> uh, Thanks. That didn't, it, it didn't quite translate that well. So uh, Haney, take a short moment just to introduce yourself, because the, the audience is going to hear a lot of you uh, going forward. Yes, hopefully we'll see how this first one goes. <laughs> I'm still wondering why I'm here, but I'm sure I'll figure it out. So I'm Heini Lamarinen, and I work as a DevOps consultant for a company here in Finland called Polar Squad. And I'm also a Microsoft MVP on the data platform side. So I kind of combine all those things and talk about, for example, architecture and DevOps and the data platform side of Azure. And just for the record, we are now two data platform MVPs, as opposed to <laughs> how many of the other kind? Well, you need two data platforms to keep up with me, so... <laughs> <laughs> we'll see Moving about on. that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you will have the data to prove it, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah. yeah, for sure. So, uh, Simon, do we have any any um, any headlines? Absolutely. We will look into previews of admin APIs, something I never have figured out how to use, but I'm sure Haney will be a brilliant person to explain what you are saying soon, Alex. We have some news in regards to private links, a new Config Manager technical preview. It's that time of the month. Next week will be uh, the release of Windows 10. So we will be preparing for that too. Norway just got a little better. We have the oddest name in the Microsoft portfolio and also the most cat-like name in Pure View, which I can't wait to speak more about. And we have a new whiteboard, which we are going to fill with a lot of not-too-intelligent stuff. Well... Let's then take a bit of a, a detour to talk about architecture patterns. And I, I know for a fact that at least one of us just perked up. <laughs> so I've been in this industry for quite some time. And it's it's funny how things kind of keep coming back. I mean, nothing is really, really new, Right. And um, one of the things that I see surprisingly often is that people go with what they know. And just because we're, instead of using things on-prem, we're going to the cloud, doesn't mean that we necessarily re-architect things. Because eh, at the end of the day, the cloud is just somebody else's data center. Well, while that 
is kind of sort of true. It also brings some um, interesting uh, quirks with it. Take, for instance, a classic data warehouse pattern where you have a source, you're pulling that source into a stage table inside of a SQL database. That was always pretty much done through SSIS or SQL Server in integration services. Or if you didn't hate your life quite as much, you were using BIML to create the SSIS packages. So we have a source on-prem, we have a stage database on-prem, and then we do some transformations either through, again, SSIS or just stored procedures in a database. So you're pulling data from the stage database, you're doing historization, you're doing cleaning, whatever you want to do to it, and then you dump the whole result in yet another database. And then you're off to the races. So how would we transplant this into Azure? Well, the obvious answer is virtual machines, but there are better ways than using a virtual machine. So what if we were to move this into a, um, a service instead? Then we have a few services to choose from, but the most obvious one is the Azure SQL database. I mean, it, as it says on the tin, it's a service that runs an Azure SQL database. So I, I couldn't think of a better, um, better tool to use. Well, actually I can, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So we are using at least two, most often three databases for this pattern. We, we need uh, to have a, a bit of a metadata database as well. So either we can spin up three Azure SQL databases, and we're gonna pay through the nose because Azure SQL database is surprisingly expensive for the relatively poor performance we get. And I mean, compared to on-prem, I can probably whip something up on my laptop and it's gonna run in circles around a fairly sizable Azure SQL database. So, what if we start to save money and put all these databases inside of an Azure SQL database elastic pool? Because instead of having to give all the databases the resources, um, a set number of CPUs, a set number of um, memory, and so on and so forth, we give that to the pool instead. And this, this is where people go, hey, I, I, I can save money here because suddenly I just need a third of the resources, right? So instead of having three databases, each with two CPUs, I can just do one pool with two CPUs and it's just gonna magically work. Well, I'm sorry to rain on your parade, but that as many other things when you just put them into Azure seem like a good idea at the time. Because what's gonna happen is you now have a pool which is sharing the resources between the databases. So far, everybody's happy. The idea is that you should have an asymmetric load on the databases. So the idea is that when one database is peaking, the other two databases should do nothing. That's how you make sure that every database gets as much of the resources at any given time. So we're kind of heading for disaster with this pattern because we are going to load both the, the stage and the data warehouse and the third database as well at the same time. So yes, we are saving money, but at the same time, we just pretty much got rid of 
two-thirds of the, the available power. So how do we sort this? Well, for starters, there are a couple of ways, but if we want to keep going with Azure SQL Server, then we need to stop thinking about separate databases. One of the, the main issues inside of Azure SQL Server is that you can't do what's known as cross-database scripting. So it doesn't matter if you have 15 databases on the same database server, they can't talk to each other anyway. But what you can do is create one database with a couple of schemas. And a schema is, is just an arbitrary um, area, so to speak. So I have stage schemas over here and I have the database warehouse schema over there and never will they meet, but I can read and write between them. So that means that I can use just one database with two CPUs. Now two CPUs is very, very small, but I'm using that as an example. And that database is gonna have all that power available at any given moment. Now, this is where it becomes a tad technical. As I said, the um, SQL database is not that hot. In fact, it's terrible. It's as slow as Windows 365. I wouldn't know. <laughs> it's true. The same amount of IOPS. Oh, oh dear. Wow. And that's, that amount of IOPS says only one thing. The disks are yes. spinning. <laughs> and you're definitely on the money here because Azure SQL Server is one of the first resources that were available in Azure. So it, it's it's old. Now, it, it's the hardware is fairly fairly new, but it's, it's still, as a, a product, it's old. And we need to keep a few things in mind. And one is that the vCourse and the memory and the IOPS, they're kind of interconnected. So if I were to run a two CPU machine, that's going to give me 10 gigs of memory, which is not that much. If I go up to a four CPU machine, then suddenly I have 20.8 gigs of memory. That's better. Now, the issue here is IOPS, because all the storage on an Azure SQL database is remote. And it could just as well be hopelessly remote, because you're looking at a, a not great IO latency. But what's even worse is the number of data IOPS you get, period. So... I was about to ask you how much would you think you get, but apparently you've already looked at the documentation, which is kind of cheating, but I do the same. So we're looking at 640 data IOPS for a two CPU machine. Yes, you heard that right, 640 IOPS, which is just, I don't even have the words for it. Slow. But hey, slow? Slow. Or slower. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if you bump this to four CPUs, you're going to be looking at 1,280 IOPS, which is still extremely slow. And it gets worse because we haven't even talked about the max log rate yet. So if I start to hammer a database, I can easily hit the max log rate, which is nine megabytes per second for two CPUs, 18 for four CPUs, 27 for six CPUs, 36, and so on and so forth. 
So in order to get any actionable speed out of this thing, I need to pile on the number of CPUs. And then we're going to go to Star Wars, where the blue droid screams. Yeah, that's going to be your wallet. It's, it's going to behave the exact same way because it gets extremely expensive, extremely fast. And just when you didn't think it could get worse, it can. So this is a kind of an aside, but we also have the Azure SQL Database Business Critical serviced here which is not designed in the same way. It, it does have um, more local storage and it is going to be faster because it has better IO latency. It has more IOPS um, or should have, and it writes to a local SSD. In fact, according to the documentation, we should be looking at 45,000 IOPS. Well, here's the dirty secret. According to the documentation, this scales almost linearly because if you're looking at a, a 16 CPU machine, that's 40,000 IOPS. A 20 CPU machine, that's 50,000. 32, that's 80,000, up to an 80 CPU machine, which gives you 200,000 IOPS. Yeah, no. <laughs> Sucks to be you. There is a limit. It's going to top out. It's going to cap out at 40 thousand IOPS. There's a fantastic uh, blog post by Brent Ozar from 2019, actually, that discusses the bottleneck in Azure SQL database storage throughput. So it doesn't really matter because it's going to stop. You're not going to get any more IOPS if you keep going from 16 cores and upwards. And, and for someone who doesn't work with this, when do you, like in a real world case, hit that level of IOPS. 16,000 or 640? <laughs> 640, that's <laughs> basically when I order beer the next time. Um, and it's not like a thousand bottles, it's one bottle. Uh, so 40,000 IOPS, how, how big can you scale? When does it max out? 40,000 IOPS, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, that, is, that is a lot. Uh, having said that, I can easily have... I don't know, 20 to 30 or 40,000 IOPS on one SSD. Mm -hmm. And if I just put in a, a um, what's they're called? The, the um, PCI yeah. slotted storage cards, they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're even more. Like mm -hmm. 200,000, it's not strange at all. Um, so again, uh, compared to the on-prem life, things are kind of slow. So how do we solve this? Is there any other tool we can use in Azure? Yes, yes, there is. Hyperscale. Hyperscale is another offering of SQL database. And Hyperscale, I think, kind of suffers from the name. Hyperscale and, and the, the, um, the marketing that says Hyperscale is your database for needs up to 100 terabytes. Yes, that's true. You can scale it to 100 terabytes and above, but that's... That's not the point. The point is it's designed in a whole different way. I mean, completely different. It's, it's more akin to um, the big data clusters of SQL Server 2019, where you have uh, storage nodes and you have compute nodes. So it's, it's uh, decoupled, so if, if you will. So this means that for a two CPU machine, 
you're going to have a six gigabyte uh, of a, a super, super fast cache, a local uh, SSD cache. And then you're going to have, um, or it's, it's not a, yeah, let, let's, let's call it that. And then you're going to have a local SSD as well. And that's going to start at 8K. So 8,000 IOPS. And of course, you're also going to have a remote page server IO. So it, it's hard to say how much IOPS you're going to get, but rest assured, it's going to be much, much more than um, 640. And if we keep piling on the number of, of CPUs, so if, for instance, if we go, go up to four, we're still going to have 20 gigs of memory. We're going to have three times 20 gigs. Um, yeah, th three times 10 is, is 30 gigs and three times 20 is, is 60 gigs of this um, RBPEX or Resilient Buffer Pool Extension, which is kind of a, a buffer pool cache, if you will. And then you're going to hit 16,000 on a maximum number of uh, IOPS on a local disk. But this must be expensive, right? Well, no, it isn't. The funny thing is we had a discussion about this at work actually last week. Uh, we have a customer who is running an old pattern on uh, Azure SQL database, and they have an issue with data load. They want to do data loads every 15 minutes. Unfortunately, their load takes 12. And it doesn't matter if they pile on the number of CPUs because it doesn't go any faster, which kind of sucks. So I said, well, what if we were to just, instead of having this as an Azure SQL database, we turn it into a hyperscale. Now we couldn't do it straight off because they are running an elastic pool, which in this specific case is hurting them even more, but we did a test run. And for a 10 to 12% increase in cost, which is what hyperscale costs compared to Azure SQL Server, they were seeing between 40 and 60% uh, decreased load times, and it scaled just about linearly. So that means that they can punch it up to 16 CPUs, get the load done in a minute, and scale it back down again. And at the end of the day, they've saved a ton of money and a lot of, of less vitriol from their uh, users. So where am I going with this long rant? Well, as always, when we move things to the cloud, the solution to a specific problem might look obvious, but things can hurt you if you try to do things as you've always done. A great example is if you try to use Azure Data Factory as you use SQL Server integration services. ADF will kill you financially if you run it in a very short, quick, uh, a lot of pipelines. That's an anti-pattern for doing things in the cloud. So you definitely need to take a step back and think about what am I actually trying to solve and don't stick so hard to this is the way I've always done it. Will it work? Most likely, yes. Will it hurt you financially? Guaranteed. And with the cloud, you can pull up some serious costs and you can do it very, very quickly in a way that you're not going to notice if you're running stuff on-prem. 
So again, it's more about people. It's more about mindset, but things definitely change when we go from the, the on-prem environment to, to the cloud. So what are your thoughts uh, about this? Simon won't have any because he, he doesn't understand, but hey, Anip. Well, I, I think the challenge here is because, for example, in the documentation, it talks about all these options side by side when you look at Azure SQL. So, and according to the documentation, you're supposed to get certain things out of the, let's say, traditional Azure SQL. So I think the challenge for people is that, well, how do you then know how it actually works in real life? Because that's necessarily not in the documentation itself. So I think kind of what you were talking about, that you made this trial of using the hyperscale, I think we should just have that mindset more when we do these cloud environments to just go and test it out and see it in real life, even kind of hold two options and test them side by side and see where we get the best results. Because I think that's the only way to find out if we don't have the experience beforehand. It's funny you should say that because I've been vehemently against the idea of a proof of concept. Because why would you need to do a proof of concept for Azure? It's been around for a decade. And I finally kind of got it into my thick head that, yeah, the technology is going to work fine. The people perhaps do need to do something like that. I actually going to change the way I speak about proof of concept to another abbreviation that I've gotten from one of my partners, proof of value. That makes a ton more sense. Yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah, exactly. Because that's what we're supposed to do. Concept, we understand that the concept works. Do we get the value? Yes or no? That also means that you need to understand what value you want to get out of it. And that is, for many, <laughs> the, the hardest bit. Why are we doing this again? Because we can. Yeah. No, and, and that, that's a very, very good point. And this is a total aside, and, and we're going to go on to the news in a, in a second. But so I had a conversation with a data scientist. The guy has a brain the size of a small truck. He is smart as heck. But he is looking at data science from a tooling perspective. So he, he'd love to package and sell machine learning or data science as a concept. And I said, well, yes, but it's just a tool. What if you look at it from a, an outcome instead and sell a result, sell an outcome, and you're using machine learning as a tool to, to get that outcome? Um, so yeah, it, it's definitely, it's all about value. So should we dive into the news? I think so. It's time. And um, I'm definitely looking forward to some of these, which I don't think we would have added if we wouldn't have had Haney here. So I'm really happy to, to speak about both my own and Haney's. And yeah, we will probably have to <laughs> cover yours as well. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> hey, you're doing the editing. Yes. I, th <laughs> I think actually the only reason that I am still in this podcast is the fact that I'm doing the editing. Otherwise, I'd be 
out of here in a heartbeat. But before we then continue, I have to give you credit for your blog post on how you do the editing, because that is superb. And I've I've shared that with so many others that have started podcasting, and they sound not as good as your podcasts, but almost. <laughs> so I think, well played, I, sir. Yeah, I think you uh, forgot to add that sprinkle of fantastic editing skills to the blog post. And now I will be silent and let you speak about admin previews. I, I, I will do that in a bit. Uh, but it, it's a funny thing you should say that because I am going to update that blog post. It's it's time for another part because I've learned so much more about EQing or equalizing uh, for for my voice, for your voice. And I'm, I'm looking forward to figuring out how to EQ Haney's voice as well. Because it is very, very individual. And it, it literally the difference between night and day when it comes to good audio quality. So I'm happy that people people enjoy the um, uh, the things that I've written. I would start to have my EQ curve on a business card. <laughs> this is how I sound. Remember it. That's not a half bad idea. <laughs> Moving on. So there is a new admin API. In, in Power BI. So one of the, the difficult things today is to figure out who has access to what. And it doesn't sound that hard. But if you have a couple of hundred reports and you have, uh, I don't know, 60 or so um, workspaces, where are you a contributor? Where are you a reader? Do you have access to a gateway? Nah, I don't know. There are no APIs for this. And that can just turn your admin day into really terrible yeah no it it sucks and the the reason why it sucks so bad is most power bi um, projects are started with let's do governance later and that means that you need to find a way to backtrack and finally there is now a preview api that can help you figure this out. It's called the Artifact Access uh, API. It's in, in public preview. Um, I, I can't wait to um, look at it to put it into, into use. Actually, I, I really like this. And again, this adds yet another topic to the session we have been talking about for now. Close yeah, to the a one decade. we've never done. <laughs> exactly. On security in Power BI and in data management in general. Because uh -huh. this is essential. You need yeah. to understand who have access to data and when they got it and what pri privileges they have. Uh, so I can't wait to see some really cool applications of this where you can audit who gets access when and where. And especially this also integrates with PIM because I can see those use cases too. Indeed. So, and, and then Haney and I had an interesting discussion earlier today because she was happy that she could talk about the networking stuff and she was very happy for me that I didn't have to do so. <laughs> I still am very happy that I don't have to do so. So, and I am, I'm also kind of impressed that Simon completely ducked reading the entire title of this news item. He just went updates with private links. Take it away, Haney. <laughs> Yes, so I, I think you will find out that I really like networking stuff and access control, all the really kind of new and shiny and cool stuff. 
I really think so. For me, in a lot of projects that I work with in Finland, we have requirements for network controls, also for the platform services. So whether it's Azure SQL or App Service or whatever that's, that part will be that we're using. And the thing that has been happening previously is that if you create a private endpoint for one of those services, you need to set uh, this kind of setting in the subnet that then will not actually apply the NSG rules or the user-defined routes that you have in place to those private endpoints. And so pretty much if you added a private endpoint, it will open it to your entire internal network. So even if you have, for example, VPN connections or anything like that to your on-premise environment, then you could access it everywhere from there. So there would be no controls in place. So in my opinion, this is a very much weighted and needed feature to have the network security groups also apply to the private endpoints and also the user-defined routes. For me, I more use the NSGs than the UDRs, but but both are needed in my opinion. And this is a preview or is it already ready to go? It's in preview and it's actually not available in very many locations yet. So for example, for us in Europe, it's not available yet. So it's kind of one of those things that it's Nice to know that it's coming, but it's not relevant for us quite yet. But soon. It's not even available in Amsterdam. No. That's quite unusual. Yeah. It's very unusual. Usual. And it's obviously unusable for us currently. So, But uh, I, I again, since I work at a company that have a very, very long background in networking... This again proves how essential it is to understand and work with networking within the public cloud. So if you are a network administrator out there, you will earn tons more money if that's your driver. If you just read up on what does this firewall, what does the, what's the name of this firewall component within Azure or AWS or Google? Because we want you. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a bit of a lack of networking knowledge on the cloud side yeah. and it's very much needed. Mm -hmm. Even I like this news item. And I did it <laughs> just to ensure that Haney could explain it much more better than I could. I never do anything without having a thought about it or behind it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> It's not good that Haney already have figured out how I work. Yes. Thank you. It's going to get well, interesting. she's not dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, heading over to something that people actually cares about then. Endpoints. <laughs> it's not private endpoints. These are, I guess, my endpoints. Uh, we have a new Config Manager technical preview. Uh, 2109. And... Um, focuses, I would say, on support. Again, a lot of things is happening around how you can view log files uh, and use the built-in tools. So it's a lot of usability in them. You can also now send feedback from more places within Config Manager. So previously, if you had a um, wizard or property dialogue within Config Manager, you needed to 
complete that, go back to the console and then send a smile or a frown to the product group. Now you can do that straight from the uh, dialogue, which enables you to actually get the, the screenshot of where you are and help them improve the product. So that's fantastic. We also have a very interesting feature and this one, it's been available for devices for a while now. Now it's extending to user collections. So basically groups of users or devices within Config Manager. Previously, when we installed an application, we also had to create a second collection, which would uninstall it. So when we wanted something to be removed, we removed it from the installation collection and added the same um, device or user to another collection. And you could do all kinds of automation with that. So a question has been for many, many years, could we get implicit uninstall? Basically, if you aren't part of the collection, uninstall something. And that can be a very dangerous thing, especially when you extend it to users, since it will uninstall the application if you jump on a computer that has the application regardless if it's your device or not, if you don't configure it correctly. So it's a very powerful feature. I love that it's now extending to user collections because that plays very well into the user-centric distribution story. But be very careful when you use it and have a think of how should we distribute applications? How do we reclaim them? When do we need to uninstall something? And such. Cool. Question. Mm -hmm. Yep. What's a frown? A sad face. Frown. <laughs> frown. But then, yeah, I think we have the name of the episode. <laughs> now when I think about it, it sounds delicious. The thing frown. I said. Yeah. Another sure. thing that is delicious. <laughs> Thank you. Windows 11. Yeah. I'm confused. <laughs> You're not alone, my friend. Um, but... Apparently, it's available next week, October the 5th. It, it works brilliantly. I, I love the user experience, especially on, on touch devices, like on my Pro X. It's fantastic. Um, and I think it's a, it's a good evolution of Windows 10. And I think what a lot of people first thought were a bad thing, the security enhancements of it is also something that's very much needed. And where Microsoft basically realized that, okay, we can't leave this in the hands of organizations or users. We need to make it secure for them. Um, but I actually had my first, let's say, real customer dialogue around it today uh, with a fairly large organization or a very large organization that are looking into deploying it. And the challenging bit is especially that we will have Windows 11 and Windows 10 running side by side for a number of years moving forward. So it will be dependent on the hardware and it will be dependent on the user training and it will be dependent on the story you want to tell within your organization if you deploy it or not. Because very few organizations want to manage more than one Windows operating system, even though the management of Windows 11 and Windows 10 are almost identical, it's still 
two things you need to validate and all sorts of things. So we'll see what happens. I'm excited to see it actually getting released and um, start working with it in production and hopefully see a continuous improvement of, of Windows both for 10 and 11. So this might be a stupid question, but I, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm confused. I will frown if it's stupid. with the frown, yes. <laughs> yeah. If I have an older PC, Mm-hmm. as in two or three years old. Mm-hmm. And it is technically not supported for Windows 11. If I have Windows 11 Insider's preview on it, will I be able to upgrade to a real Windows 11? That's one question. The other question is, will I will be able to run Windows 11 on this technically unsupported hardware but still very very much viable technical hardware or not or am i stuck with windows 10 i should have a straight answer to this but i don't i think you will be blocked you won't be able to run it and i'm actually a bit interested in how you got the inside the previews to run on it as well because they should have the same requirements they changed it they, yeah, they changed yeah. the, the requirements basically yeah. mid-stride. So th- this means that for the, I don't know, six machines that I have, uh, two of them are going to be able to run Windows 11 and the others are going to be stuck at Windows 10 despite them being more than capable of running just about anything. What, what are you getting blocked at? Well, I tried to install the, the previews and the preview said this machine is not supported. Yeah, but Why? Is it TPM, UEFI, unsupported chipset? Because if it's TPM, you probably can upgrade if it's that new. So I, I don't know, actually. I, um, I, and this is going to be even more stupid. <laughs> I didn't even think of asking that question. I, no, I just I, I, saw it's not supported. Okay, I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be quiet now. Yeah, I think, uh, so to clarify... No, you shouldn't be able to install neither inside the previews nor the production of Windows 11 if the hardware isn't supported. Most modern hardwares will, but you may need to upgrade to TPM 2.0 especially. There are some other caveats as well, but most modern, even consumer gaming PCs, whatever, should be able to upgrade. And you are not lost windows 10 is still there it will be developed they're still coming inside the previews it's a fantastic operating system so you aren't losing out on anything other than improved performance improved security and a better looking operating system but if you don't care about that you're fine <laughs> well then, then i could run windows windows 95 my, my question then is why 95 no Better games. Why, why is 11 and 10 going to be living side by side? Why are we seeing a, a fork? I would suggest you go back to my epic rant before summer. I, I remember <laughs> that. I think you kind of asked the, the same question. I have no idea. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. And I'm, then I'm being kind. <laughs> I, I, yeah, we, we won't even continue that discussion because people will get mad 11 is fantastic windows 10 is fantastic 
they should have chosen another name for Windows 11. Unfortunately, that name were taken by a, another horrific cloud service with a terrible IOPS count. Linux? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Windows Linux would actually have been a better name. Windex. Windlux. Mm. Isn't Windlux someone that like makes washing, washing machines? Are you thinking no about idea. Electrolux? No, I'm not. <laughs> oh, this is going. Let, let's let's continue to Norway. <laughs> yeah, let's let's go to Norway. So Norway has had the the uh, data centers for quite some time, the Azure mm -hmm. data centers, but now they just opened the availability zones, which means that you can store data in triplicate across the three physical data centers. This has been in a private preview for quite some time, but now it is in in. It's it's publicly available to to run the um, availability zones in the Norway East data center region, which is it's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. I I can't wait to get. I was about to say my data center, but <laughs> our data center here in, in Sweden. Um, it was supposed to come online in September. I don't think that's going to happen, uh, but I don't know when it's going to happen. But it's it's going to be a lot of fun. It will. It will. And now it's something about cats, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, purview, which is in preview. Try saying that many times in a row. I never manage. Perfect. So, <laughs> purview was uh, came out into the preview uh, sometime. <laughs> sorry, I'm just getting myself lost here. Uh, sometime last year, at the end of last year, and it is still in preview. And kind of when purview came out uh it seemed like one of those services again that is going to be aimed at big organizations you can't really use it small but you kind of have to use it big right away from the beginning and there were some other challenges as well to really be a data governance tool where you have good ac access control and so forth so in the latest august update i think there were two really central improvements that will help using this tool going forward. So there was the elastic data map, which means that I think it sounds like something completely different than it actually is, but it means that uh, the compute that it's going to use for uh, scanning your data sources is going to get uh, elastically scaled. So you don't have to set a specific count of those um, compute units is not the correct term here because of course there's a different term for it but essentially the compute units that are used for scanning the data sources so when this came out you had options to do four or ten now it starts from one as a default and then it scales according to what you need so that means that the pricing has become much more reasonable which I think is a good news for many many organizations, especially if it's a smaller data landscape, if you would say. And then the other aspect is the access control side, because first of all, you only had access control at your entire purview account level. And so if you're a large organization, you're not probably going to want to have everyone see your data sources and the information about your data. So that wasn't very usable. And so now, now the collections actually have changed behind the scenes, and this has enabled 
for the access control to be defined at the collection level. So the collections are kind of um, sets of data sources that you get to define yourself and structure in the way that is reasonable for your organization. And now you get to take this access control aspect into the account as well and help that in configuring the collections in the correct way. Cool. So Purview is is one of Microsoft's big bets. And let's just yes. say that it's it's been off to a rough start. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it'll get better. But I think the, the challenge there, and, and I see the same thing. I've been working a bit with e-discovery and, and data control within Microsoft 365. And, and that's not even on the radar for the majority of organizations, especially not in the Nordics. In the US, mm-hmm. it's huge. Um, and and but very few understand what it actually does. So if you have e-discovery administrators, compliance administrators within Microsoft 365, remove them <laughs> because they have the same challenges as having one level of administration within PureView. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that now when we are pushing data and making data accessible in so many new ways using the data platform and, and Power Platform, we need to have something like this that complements the discovery features of Microsoft 365. But this is so much more complicated. So mm-hmm. I, I can't wait to to learn more about it. And um, I think these are very much needed uh, addition to the service. I think we need a, a focus segment on purview. And I, I, yeah, I think I know who should do that. Your cat? That's no. a good idea. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> this was going so well. Well, um, as always, we are running out of time. I'll just very quickly mention the new Microsoft Whiteboard. It doesn't sound like much, but it's a it's a very usable um, tool. Yeah. Because it is available... Well, right now it's not available in, in, in Windows. It's going to come out next month. But it is available in uh, on the web, in Teams, and on Android. Uh, Windows and iOS is going to come next month. So we have a lot of new new um, templates. There is a new, fresh, modern look and feel, as it says. Uh, sticky notes, uh, reactions. You can insert shapes and images and, and new inking tools and on and so on and so forth. So it, it's, a, it's a surprisingly usable piece of kit. And I love the collaboration um, opportunities that you have. So you can be multiple people in a Teams meeting, drawing on the same whiteboard and it, it actually mm-hmm. actually works. You even get a laser pointer. Which cats kind of like as well. And I, I'd be surprised if, if that is not the same with, with consultants. <laughs> I think so. But we know that we should never, ever use a laser pointer. Why? <laughs> because it, ta- it distracts the audience just as if they mm. were cats. Oh, so That's true. as a speaker, you should never use a laser pointer. That is a good mm-hmm. point. Yeah, we can use laser pointers for a lot of other good reasons, but never when you do presentations. As always, we are out of time. I just want to uh, very briefly mention as well, we have switched the website. There are bugs. They will be squished. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm roping in the uh, professionals, Katrina Wilhelmsen, to the rescue. <laughs> Uh, to help us sort out a few uh, small uh, things with the layout. But it's it's a whole new thing. It's on, on Azure Static Websites. It is super sleek, super fast, and so happy to be rid of, of WordPress. I can say that. 
and the huge bill from our previous ISP. <laughs> Just saying. I think that's it. Um, that's what we have time for today. That was the first of hopefully many episodes featuring Haney. Haney is now the third host. Uh, I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, we, we had a huge uh, finish hole after Tony. Um, yes, I hope I can kind of feel that. <laughs> <laughs> well, he had pretty big shoes, so I think you need to work on that. But Yeah, that can be a bit challenging. Then again, he didn't know anything about purview. Oh, exactly. True. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> you are now asking the right questions. And that's what we have for you all today. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in about a week or two. Until then, have a good one. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of Need in Tech. Need in Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Heini Hilmarinen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at needinbintech.com. 